Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1945, a year before what's been called the baby boom began, the population of the United States was around 140 million. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over the next 19 years, 76 million babies were born. In his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, Philip Bump, a national columnist for the Washington Post, looks into their socioeconomic and political impact, how the baby boom created modern America, and where power, wealth, and politics will shift as the boom ends. It's published by Viking and brings Philip Bump to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, baby boomers followed the silent generation and preceded general Generation X. Aren't millennials the largest generation now? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of caveats here. The first is that when we talk about generations, generational definitions like silent, Gen X and millennial, the, besides for the baby boom, which is a distinct demographic event that you just described, this huge surge in births and is, is demographically isolatable uh, by, by people who do who study these sorts of things. Other generations we've come up with are generally just sort of uh, they are they're invented. They're they're not defined by anything demographically. They're just sort of general cohorts of people that we identify because it's useful to us conversationally. It's useful to marketers and things along those lines. So yes, you're you're right that that the baby boom is in common parlance bookended by the silent generation, also known at times as the, as the greatest generation uh, or Generation X. And it is also true that currently today, based on certain definitions of who counts as a millennial, there are more millennials alive today. But of course, that's because the baby boom began more than 70 years ago. Uh, and there's been some natural attrition to the baby boom. If you look at baby boomers, when the first boomers hit age 40, as opposed to when the first millennials hit age 40, there were more boomers per capita, much less as a percentage of the population uh, than millennials. Now, the baby boom began right after the end of World War II. So I'm assuming right. that to some degree, returning soldiers played a role in the boom. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the general the understanding. Piece. Right. Yeah. But, you know, obviously that doesn't last 19 years. <laughs> you know, that's, you yeah. know, the, those those sorts of instincts uh, uh, fade more rapidly than that. Uh, you know, there, there are a number of reasons why the boom occurred, including that in the aftermath of World War II, there was an enormous surge in the American economy. There was a lot of space to have kids uh, that there was, you know, it was almost some, somewhat self-reinforcing that people were just having more kids. And that was just sort of a cultural phenomenon that occurred. You know, there, the, the, my book itself doesn't go into a lot of the causes of the baby boom. There's a great book called Great Expectations by Lanny Jones came out in 1980 that delves into that to, to a much larger extent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was a broad range of societal factors, and particularly economic ones, that contributed to the boom's duration. Do you say that the baby boom created modern America? How much right. can we expect power, wealth, and politics to shift now as the impact of the boom ends? Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the impact of the boom is going to endure. You can't sort of create modern America and then have that dissipate immediately, right? I mean, and when I say create modern America, I don't mean that directly the, the decisions made by baby boomers have done that, but rather that the United States was forced to grapple with this huge surge in people at a very particular age group, right? So you have, for example, all these babies being born, and all of a sudden there's this huge economy for products targeting babies, like diapers, like 
bronzing shoes, right? All of a sudden you have this massive new marketplace and that marketplace continues as they get older. Uh, and essentially what's happening in the moment is we've reached the point at which the marketplace is for seniors that, you know, for retirees, this is the new massive marketplace that has emerged because of the baby boom. And so it is not just that the baby boomers now hold power and are making decisions, but it is over the course of the entire duration of the baby boom, America has been forced to respond to the baby boom and to change what it is doing based on the baby boom first emerging and then fading. So, for example, you have to build a bunch of elementary schools when baby boomers are little kids, but then you see the number of young people declines significantly. And so what do you do with all those schools? And mm. so, for example, in the book, I explore how a lot of those schools have been converted to senior housing. Right? Which That's what happened in California. Happening. Yeah, That's it's, it's happened. happening across the country. Um, mm -hmm. So, so the, the country had to reshape itself around the boom simply by virtue of the fact that the boom was so big. And now the question is, now that America looks the way it does, how it evolves. Uh, and, you know, that evolution is very much up in the air and to a large extent dependent on the decisions that boomers, who still hold disproportionate power, uh, the decisions that they make now. You write that by 2025, most boomers will be age 65 or over. Right. Um, in 2030, boomers are projected to make up about 17 percent of the population, the lowest density since 1955. Right. And then, of course, it goes down from there. Right. So um, are, are boomers about to lose much of their cloud? Yeah, I or, mean, I think that there are. So first of all, the, the most retirees at this point are baby boomers that that we've already passed that threshold. Mm. Uh, and so that means that there is because a, because retiring began by law was what, 65. Well, that's the retirement age, but it just happens mm. to be the government tracks who's retired and how old they are. I mean, their retirees are in their 40s, you know, those, the very lucky few. And then there are people who don't retire like me. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so but but, you know, the government tracks data. And so we know that most retirees are at this point in time boomers. Uh, but it is also the case that older Americans have traditionally held disproportionate power. They've held disproportionate economic power because they bought houses and managed to stay in those houses. And, you know, they vote more often in part because they own houses. And so they don't move very often. They don't have to update their voter registration. There are all these ways in which historically in pre-boom, older people held more power by virtue of having reached a certain age and having certain, uh, you know, accoutrements and, and accomplishments. Uh, and so now what we see, though, is we see that there are far more older people than there used to be. And we see that happening to your original point at a time when we have this very large generation, the millennial generation, uh, that is contesting for that power. It, for the first time, the baby booms never really had to contest for power. They've always sort of gotten their way, <laughs> not collective, you know, not not like a bunch of you know, collective baby boomers deciding what they want to do, but rather just because the country had to figure out what to do about them. They've always, you know, the, the boomers have always been the priority, but now we're seeing this real contesting of power. You know, millennials, they're not as worried about senior housing and they're not as worried about social security. They're worried about schools and they're worried about, they're worried about, you know, funding childcare and things along those lines. And so, so that I think contributes a lot to the tension we see now. And I think that's necessarily going to be settled on behalf of the millennials over time. Because boomers will continue to control a fair share of the wealth, even as their population declines? Well, they, they will. That's true. I mean, there is a massive shift of wealth away from the baby boom that's already underway. Uh, people with whom I spoke said that in 2021, for example, there was about $2 trillion of wealth that moved from the boomers elsewhere, not just 
through bequeathments or anything along those lines. There's also, you know, uh, uh, what's called uh, in vivo uh, contributions. So paying for a child's house, uh, something along those lines, also going to charities and, and things like that. Uh, but over the course of the next two decades or so, we're talking about more than $50 trillion moving out of the baby boom. Uh, and, mm. you know, th- where that goes is a real question. People sort of assume that goes downstream and, you know, much of it will. But a lot of it's going to go to paying for long term health care costs or paying for mm. senior housing and paying for this new market that's emerging around seniors. Well, there is a, a current debate in Congress over the future funding for Social Security and Medicare. Right. How much should that be a concern for boomers? Well, it's fascinating because the politics of that traditionally you see that Democrats are uh, more interested in preserving funding for Social Security and Medicare. Uh, But now there's a real impetus for Republicans to be more concerned about that. That's not necessarily reflected everywhere in the debate. But uh, the Republican Party is much more disproportionately old than the Democratic Party. About a third of the Republican Party is age 65 or over at this point in time. And that's so. So boomers uh, make up a a fair percentage of the Republican base? Yeah, no, they do. That's true. And it is certainly the case that there are both Republican and Democratic baby boomers, almost equally. Uh, But because the Republican Party is so much older uh, than the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. boomers make up a much larger percentage of the Republican Party than they do the Democratic Party. And therefore, the Republican Party is going to be more responsive to what the boomers, you know, what Republican boomers are calling for. Many boomers have reached the legal retirement age. Have many of them chosen to continue to work because they're concerned that they may lose some of the retirement benefits? Yeah, absolutely. People with whom I spoke pointed out that in part because baby boomers have always been the sort of exceptional generation, uh, that there are a lot of people who are choosing to continue to be active and engaged in, in, in work and other things, uh, even in retirement. Uh, but also part of it's out of necessity. Obviously, we had, you know, the baby boomers, the first baby boomers uh, turned uh, 65 in 2009, right when the economy was mm. in the toilet. Uh, and so a lot of them had no choice. There's polling from Gallup that shows that in in the years prior to the economic collapse in the middle, you know, around that time period, uh, that there was a lot more optimism about being able to retire early. And then that that sentiment really, really crumbled in the face of the recession. Uh, So it is, yes, there are a lot of retirees or people of retirement age who are members of the baby boom generation who are choosing to continue to work. But it also happened that the onset of retirement for the baby boomers coincided with this massive retraction in the economy. Will millennials find themselves shortchanged for jobs and capital as Gen Z rises? What about boomers? Yeah, I mean, one of the real concerns of demographers with whom I spoke is not that there will be uh, shortage of jobs, but there will be a surfeit of jobs. There will be too many jobs that go unfilled because so many boomers are retiring. Now, again, hmm. it is the case there's almost a one-to-one between millennials and boomers, so that may not be the case. Uh, but we're all, the ratio between working-age Americans and older Americans is really starting to skyrocket over the you know for for several decades. It's fairly stable. There's about the same ratio of working-age people to older people uh, for for decades prior to basically the time when boomers start to retire. And that was useful because it meant that you had a steady stream of tax income coming in that could fund programs for seniors. But now there are fewer people paying taxes that can go to those programs and a lot more people needing those programs. 
And so demographers are very worried about the extent to which we're going to be able to replenish the workforce uh, and therefore be able to provide the infrastructural support that we need for older people. Hasn't COVID had a disproportionate impact on boomers? It has, absolutely. But it's important to remember, you know, and I, I hate to say it like this because it sounds as though I'm being dismissive, but the number of people who've died from COVID as a percentage of the entire population is thankfully relatively small. Um, it's significant. More than a million people have died. That's that's huge and obviously tragic. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about a generation of tens of millions of people and that baby boomers were among the, the people most at risk from COVID-19 obviously were the oldest Americans who tended to be people who were older than the baby boom as well. Uh, so this is both, you know, the, 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 the worst effects of COVID-19 happened to people generally older than baby booms or just even the oldest baby boomers. And within that, the number of people who died was relatively small relative to population happily. Um, so the, the effects are not as dramatic as one might think. So boomers will not have uh, an inordinate impact on the healthcare system. Oh, I absolutely will. There's no question it will. I, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, again, we see this huge surge. The, the analogy that's long been used to the baby boom is that it's like a, a python swallowing a pig. If you, so you can imagine a snake sort of working this jaw around a pig, and how we're going to get to that like, later. We're going to get to okay. your chart well, and all well, the on point that. Is, no, it's fine. We, but the point is that the, the pig is not to get ahead of it. But, you know, we're now at the place where the, the, the this swelling of the population is happening at this older age group. And so, you know, I spoke with a woman who does senior housing and she basically is very, very, very frankly said, you know, we've been waiting for this for decades. This is our moment. We show you we knew this huge market was coming, uh, coming down the pike towards us. And now it's here. And so, you know, that's senior housing, but it holds for medical costs as well. Medical costs, uh, you know, depending on how long baby boomers live individually, there's going to be an enormous amount of money that's spent on medical care. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a, it, to, to a degree that we haven't seen previously, I think it's safe to say. Well, a lot of what we're talking about is speculation. Isn't it difficult at times to separate speculation from fact? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is, I mean, it's necessarily speculative when we talk about what happens in the wake of the baby boomers losing power because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, you know, in my book, I, I, I am very concerted and hopefully relatively thorough in recognizing the things that we don't that we aren't able to necessarily predict. You know, what are the effects of climate change? Uh, what are the effects? You know, how long will people live? Which obviously plays a big role, as we've just been discussing. Um, you know, what what when we talk about the future of America, which is often related to the future of American demography, how accurate can, do we feel that those demographic projections are going to be? So there, there, there are a lot of aspects to this that we ought to be very clear in recognizing we don't know the answers to. My guest is Philip Bump, a national columnist for the Washington Post. His book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, is published by Viking. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned demographics. How relevant to this discussion is where baby boomers choose to live? I think it's quite relevant in both in the sense that we are going to have we're going to see this shift in 
the amount of money spent on housing for seniors and what, what those communities look like, which I don't think we have a, a clear answer to at this point, but also in the sense that shifts in where Americans choose to live undergird a lot of uh, the political divide that we see in the country at this point, as has been documented well elsewhere, like in the book, The Big Sort uh, by Bill Bishop, you know, the, this, this, where we choose to live is reinforcing a lot of patterns of partisanship. Uh, and so since the baby boom continues to be a very big population, I mean, we've already take Florida, for example, right? The, the, the villages, which is this complex of houses uh, just northwest of Orlando. Uh, it's one of the fastest growing places in the country because so many people are moving there. It's actually pulling the center of population in Florida back to the northwest and away from Miami after they've been heading to Miami for decades. Uh, and that's, that's because a lot more people are getting older and the villages is a very specific type of community, a very conservative one. Uh, and it is it offers an interesting glimpse into one way in which the market will respond to this new surge in older Americans. So it's mostly older white voters who are moving to Florida these days? Well, the villages in particular. There are other aspects, mm -hmm. other areas of Florida. Well, I, I was thinking about it in terms of Ron DeSantis and uh, his sure. impact on national politics and whether uh, retiring boomers are relevant to that uh, impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the people with whom I spoke in Florida pointed out that the demographics of this state, the state has gotten less densely white overall, but that's been offset to an extent to a significant extent by the arrival of a lot of older white people and older people tend to vote more. Older people uh, tend to be citizens uh, more than new arrivals, you know, Hispanic immigrants to Florida, for example, and, and therefore they can vote. Um, so, yeah, so there was this anticipation that Florida was going to sort of move to the left as it got more diverse. But because of the composition of the people who are coming to Florida, that hasn't been the case to the Republicans benefit. A listener wonders whether uh, what the uh, pickleball tells us about all of this, because it's a game that's no. favored by seniors. That's a great that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is an example of the way in which the arrival of so many older Americans is creating new marketplaces. And again, this has been the pattern of the boom from the outset that the, all of a sudden you have a, a ton more people of this age group that you didn't have before and there's a new marketplace and pickleball is a really good example of that honestly one i hadn't thought of hmm. well after at the beginning of the baby boom there was a population explosion in fact one between 1946 and 54 uh, that had a major impact on california uh is that still being felt in california Yes. I, I mean, there are a variety of ways in which that's still being felt. I mean, California is obviously long. The, 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 one of the reasons I ask is because sure. we just talked about how Florida is becoming more politically conservative. Um, but I don't see that in California, despite the fact that so many um, boomers move there. Are they moving away? Um, to, to, a, to a limited extent, yes. I mean, one of the ways in which, to, to answer your initial question, one of the ways in which the boom is still being felt in California is that uh, baby boomers, when they held power in the 1970s uh, and were starting to buy houses, uh, passed a proposition which essentially kept 
uh, property tax rates low uh, in a way that's still being felt and having repercussions for younger people. But California is a magnet broadly for a lot of different people. Uh, Florida is a magnet as well, but it's much more a magnet for retiring older people. And when we talk about older people in America, we're generally talking about heavily, you know, they're, they're, they're mostly white. Uh, that's That, too, is one of the legacies of the baby boom. It's a very heavily white generation, perhaps one of the whitest generations uh, uh, in the past two centuries. Um, but the it's certainly the, the least immigrant dense uh, uh, generation in the past two centuries. Interesting. Yeah. So African-Americans didn't uh, join in the baby boom generation, despite the fact that uh, they were going through major changes at the time? Yeah, no, they did. I mean, yes, the, the baby boom affected people of all races. But when you look at who was in the United States when the baby boom began, it was a period in which immigration in particular was at a lull. There have been new restrictions placed on immigration about a century ago that were still in place. At the time the baby boom began, the average immigrant was somebody's grandparent. Uh, and immigration yeah. laws were uh, loosened after that. Uh, and so, you know, when I say that it was very heavily white, I should have said very heavily white and very low uh, Im- density of immigrants and children of immigrants. Uh, simply because of what the rules that were in place. And so what that meant was a very, uh, very white generation, certainly, um, and a generation that was didn't have a lot of ties to other countries. Uh, but it's sort of fascinating, too, because once immigration laws were liberalized in the late 1960s, what we saw is it used to be when we talked about people who were white and people who weren't white, the people who weren't white were almost uniformly black, but that's not the case anymore. And so part of the changing demography of the United States is that we have this diversity even beyond just, you know, the, the, the non-white diaspora, if you will, has become so broad and, and includes so many so many people. Um, that too is sort of changing the face of America in a way that is, is would be very unfamiliar to people born in 19, or, you know, to people having kids in 1946. So there was a huge influx of baby boomer immigrants around 50 years ago. Have they tended to be more politically liberal? The it is the case that generally speaking, um, and you know, there's a lot of nuances in immigrant communities depending on which community it is and where they came from. The Vietnamese community in California, for example, tends to be much more heavily Republican, uh, as does the Cuban community in uh, South Florida. Uh, but it is generally the case that Black and Hispanic and Asian Americans. Uh, are more likely to vote Democratic than Republican, often by wide margins, particularly in the case of black Americans. Um, it is uh, the, the the politics of immigrant communities other than that can at times be hard to, to parse simply because there aren't enough of them to be able to pull regularly or to be able to parse out, you know, much less, you know, the people who are, have actually also obtained citizenship. Uh, so it's, it's sort of hard to paint with too broad a brush in everything. Well, it's been predicted that the United States will become a minority-majority country. Have white nationalism and white fear been evident in uh, a considerable proportion of boomers? I think that one of the central components of American politics at this moment is this this backlash against the perceived demographic changes the country is going through. And that backlash is very much... Uh, presence in the baby boom generation, which, as I as I just mentioned, is a, a very heavily white generation, uh, that there are studies that show, depending on how you talk about 
demography in the United States, you can elicit a very strong negative reaction, particularly from white Republicans. And as I said, you know, white Republicans tend to be older and tend to be baby boomers. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is it, I, I don't think that when we talk about, you know, neo-fascistic, you know, Nazis who are marching in the streets of America, unfortunately, I don't think those tend to be baby boomers. But baby boomers, no, were just, you know, usually when you have protests, it tends to skew young. But if you look at something like January 6th, it skewed a lot older than is, than is the norm, in part because that was the base of people who reacted positively to Trump's message. So many of the people in, in uh, the protests on January 6th were boomers? Yeah, I mean, a disproportionate number. Not, not. Hmm. It wasn't a plurality by any stretch. But if you look at historically who participates in protests, it tends to be a young person's game. Uh, but there's actually a chart in the book that looks at, you know, the, the ages of January, those people who would have been arrested for January 6th uh, related offenses and skewed much more heavily old uh, than one would have expected. Have attitudes changed? Wasn't diversity celebrated for quite a while in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some important caveats. One is that absolutely the baby boom helped ensure that the civil rights movement was successful. Uh, you know, the baby boom itself was generally too young to participate actively in uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, but, you know, in the in the wake of that, there was certainly a lot of hmm. it was uh, the beginning uh, of the civil rights movement anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at something like the Voting Rights Act, right? I mean, that you know mm -hmm. that essentially happened right at the end of the, the baby boom itself, and so the oldest mm -hmm. baby boomers were you know teenagers, uh, which is you know, and most of the boomers were actually born in the latter half of the baby boom. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, it is also the case yeah. that what. To, to my earlier point, what diversity means in the United States has changed. So at the time when you talked about uh, uh, recognizing diversity and recognizing, you know, promoting racial harmony, things like that, you're, you're talking about white and black. And now America is much more diverse than it used to be. And uh, so it means something different. And there's actually an interesting study cited in the book that a lot of white Americans still see uh, non-whites as a monolith. They, 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 they view... Uh, they, they think that there is sort of a collective sensibility among black and Hispanic and Asian Americans, all of whom are sort of targeting white America. I'm not saying this is, you know, everyone holds this view, but there is a, a sizable contingent of people who do. Um, in part, I think just because historically we've talked about race in these in these uh, bipolar terms, when in reality that's no longer what America looks like. Well, the, the boomers... Uh the boomer generation were born at a time when the country was still largely segregated, but desegreg But the oldest ones uh, turned 18 in 1964, uh, where when the country was going through many changes in regards to civil rights. So um, it, it did many go. Uh, what are we seeing in the baby boomers? Did people who supported it then change their minds? Well, it's hard to track individual people over time. I mean, but again, you, you're right. That is true that the oldest the, the oldest boomers turned 18, 1964. But again, the oldest boomers, there's a big surge of births in 1960 or 1946, which, you know, bled off the boom. But they were only a small percentage of the baby boomers. The, the number of births per year continued to grow until the 1950s. And so most boomers, when we talk about boomers as a collected entity, most of them are a lot younger than that. You know, most of them were not turning 18, 1964 and therefore had a very limited role in that in that very critical period uh, in the civil rights movement. There, there's an interesting aspect to this, though, that I think 
deserves comment, which is that when we talk about things like uh, the backlash to Brown versus Board of Education, the naming of all of these schools after Confederate leaders and things like that, part of the reason that all that's all that happened is because there are so many schools being built to accommodate the baby boomers. So you had this huge surge in school construction that gave you all sorts of opportunities then to slap on the name of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or whoever it happened to be. And so in in a lot of ways that, you know, when we talk about how the baby boom shaped America, I think that's a really good manifestation of it and a good manifestation of how the civil rights movement itself and the baby boom had, sort of have this weird and in, intermingled relationship. What role did the boomers play in the 1960s counterculture, Woodstock, the uppies and, sure. and such? Yeah, it was huge, right? And I think one of the things, you know, when we look at something like the Vietnam War, uh, and it's it's useful to consider that you had a number of baby boomers who were turning 18 and graduating from high school and there were not enough jobs for them. And so you had a lot of them that went to college, but you also had this huge pool of young people that were available to be drafted and serve in Vietnam. Uh, and I'm not saying that that was a primary cause for it, but it certainly was a factor. Uh, and it also helped help the generation learn how to use its voice. Uh, you know, the, that the voting age was increased from 18 to, or from, you know, that was decreased from 21 to 18 right when boomers were in that age group is not a coincidence. You know, it's another way in which the sheer scale of the generation forced America to change. Uh, but yeah, this was a population of people who was large enough that even by the time the, the, the middle group of them had reached around the age 18, they'd already learned that they had a really loud collective voice. They'd seen that from marketers. Marketers were constantly appealing to them. They trying to get their ad dollars. They, they, you know, music was targeted. The movies were targeted. They understood that they had that power and they were able to leverage it. They were able to leverage it on social issues. Uh, and one of the challenges that we see now, you know, one of the intergenerational tensions that we see now is rooted in the fact that honestly, that the boomers were pretty successful at a lot of their political fights. And now we see a younger generation which doesn't have to take up those same fights and instead is focusing on things like climate change and LGBTQ issues uh, that weren't salient to baby boomers. And so they, the baby boomers are seen as sort of arch conservative simply because they didn't fight those fights, but those fights weren't the fights that were important to liberal uh, young people when the boomers were young. And so it's, it's sort of fascinating to consider how their own success to some extent made it so that the, the fights that young liberal people are having now are very different. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. my conversation with Philip Bum. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. 
To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. But don't forget to make that $50 donation, $50 or more donation, in the name of London Located at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Philip Bump. Again, the book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, is from Viking. Uh, Mr. Bump is a national correspondent for The Washington Post. And uh, you also write a newsletter called How to Read This Chart. This book contains 128 charts. What do you hope to achieve through charts that you can't get just through regular text? Well, I mean, the great thing about having data visualizations is that you can summarize a lot of data very succinctly, right? Uh, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, as they say, and that certainly holds true for charts as well. And so one of the things I wanted to do in the book is both, you know, I, I tend to think in terms of data visualization, so it made it easier for me, uh, but it really helps you get a sense, for example, the scale of the boom. If you can see this surge and burst as, as you know, columns on a graph, it, it's you can see how it, how it is distinct. There are lots of ways in which presenting this information as a data visualization lets you to see at a glance, okay, I get why this is significant or how these shifts happened in a way, you know, or even even things that undercut assumptions. So if, once you plot a chart of how much wealth each generation has per capita, you can see the boomers aren't that exceptional, that boomers have about as much wealth per capita as any other generation. That's much easier to see in a chart than it is to sort of articulate the numbers uh, when you write it out in a paragraph. You referred to uh, one of the what's in one of the charts. Uh, earlier in our conversation, this one is titled The Pig Wends Its Way Through. What does it mm-hmm. show? Well, that particular one shows the the effect of the metaphor um, that has long been used to describe the baby boom, which, again, is this the idea that the snake is eating a pig. And the idea of the metaphor is to show how, how the size of the population sort of distend uh, the United States, the United States be the python here. Uh, and so what that chart, that chart isn't meant to look, the New York Times in its review seemed to think it was supposed to show a pig in a python, which isn't where it's supposed to show. It is instead supposed to show the bulge of the baby boom as a progressive through each age group over time. So you can see how much of the country is actually made up of members of the baby boom from the very first uh, members of the, in 1950, the very first census, all the way up to the census projections in 2060, at which point they're only a very small sliver of the United States. And so it's, it's just a depiction of the way in which one can think about how this massive bulge has moved its way through the American population. Inspired by a metaphor that was used in a book you mentioned earlier, the 1980 book Great Expectations Mm -hmm. by uh, Landon Y. Jones. That's right. Yeah, I mean, he himself doesn't take credit for having originated the the expression, if I I remember correctly. I think he, Mm -hmm. I don't know if he uh, identifies the, the... starting point for it but yeah it's a it's a common metaphor and it's a, it's a useful one just because it it's gross <laughs> admittedly uh, but it does do a good job of making you think okay like this is a massive disruption that needs to be that 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 uh it has to be accommodated in some way and so i think it's useful in that regard another chart that i found interesting was uh how states vary from the future united states 
mm-hmm. which are ranger states according to the current and projected racial representation. Right. Yeah, so the Census Bureau, as, as I just mentioned, does projections of uh, what it expects demography to look like through to the year 2060. Uh, according to its most recent projections, it updates these sporadically. Uh, and according to the uh, projections of 2060, it expects America to look much older and look uh, to be much uh, uh, the, the density of uh, people who are not white, black, and Hispanic, and Asian in particular, uh, to be much larger, particularly Hispanic. That expects Hispanics to be a much larger percentage of the population. So if you compare that, if you look at racial identity and age and compare the expected metrics for the nation at large with all the states as they are currently, the state that lines best, aligns best with uh, what the Census Bureau expects the country to look like in 2060 is actually Florida. Uh, but, you know, the, as soon as I say that, a lot of Democrats will freak out and like, oh my God, does that mean, you know, Ron DeSantis is going to be the president for, president for life in 2060? And uh, again, though, we have to go back to the conversation we we're having earlier that the demography of the Hispanic population in Florida and the older population in Florida simply doesn't look the way that the national, those populations are going to look nationally in 2060. Uh, so we can't take too many instructions from that. But it is a good reminder of the ways in which American demography is likely to change. Well, there was a time when there was a feeling that there was a lot of bipartisanship in government. And now it has become much more polarized. Um, I don't know how that relates to what you're writing about here with the baby boomers. But... Um, I guess some of the people, uh, important figures in all of this are boomers. Yeah, I mean, yes, it, it, there is has been an increased polarization in the United States over the course of the past 30 years uh, in particular, uh, and that a lot of the participants in that polarization are baby boomers. Um, I'm not sure that if there hadn't been a surge of bursts in the 40s and 50s, you know, we wouldn't see the same level of polarization. I think there are a lot of aspects to it that uh, are independent of population. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the case that uh, that those two things have overlapped. I'm not sure there's any causality between them, though. Donald Trump was born in June 1946. Does that qualify him as a boomer? It does. And as does George W. Just Bush, who was born in July of 46. And as Bill Clinton, who's born in August of 46. They're all born in two months of each other, which I, I actually like to use that as an example of how you can't then assume that the baby boom is is uniform in its politics, right? You have the three representations, the three three sort of different realms of American politics at the moment, Bill Clinton, a liberal Democrat, George W. Bush, an established Republican, Donald Trump, uh, this fringe Republican, all being born two months uh, in the summer of 1946. Uh, you know, technically, the Census Bureau looks at the, the baby boom starting in about the middle of 1946. Colloquially, we all just sort of talk about it as being anyone born in 46 through anyone born in 64. Well, Joe Biden was born in 1942, so he's not a boomer. He's not. Yeah. And that's a great trivia question. There are four presidents who were born who are baby boomers. And people always assume it's Biden and the three I just mentioned. But it's actually Trump, George W. Bush, Clinton and Barack Obama, who came at the very tail end of the baby boom. Yeah, but we don't see uh, anything that ties them all together, do we? I mean, no. the only thing that, no, that sure ties don't. them together <laughs> is that they're boomers. 
Yeah, exactly. But this is the point, right? That the baby boom is not this homogeneous entity. It is, you know, it is not the case that all boomers are the same. Uh, and I would never suppose, you know, one of the great tensions in the book is that I'm very clear that the baby boomers are, are a very diverse group in its own way, not necessarily demographically. Uh, but at the same time, it's useful to talk about them as a, as a cohort of people because there are shared characteristics and tendencies. Didn't you actually meet with the first recorded baby boomer, Kathleen Casey Kirschling? I did. She's a she's a lovely woman. She was sort of anointed by Landon Jones as the first baby boomer. She was born right at the stroke of midnight on January 1st, 1946. Uh, and so, you know... You know, this is one of those things where if you're going to try and find someone to be the first boomer, you might as well just find someone and pick them. You know, there's, there's no sort of categorization or formality to it. It's just sort of Landon Jones said, OK, this is who it's going to be. So I talked to her. She's she is fascinating. Uh, she's, a, again, a, a perfectly lovely person. Uh, it was very interesting to speak with her. But she's also interesting as a boomer from the sense that she has spent 30 years of her life being keenly aware of her status as this first boomer. She, you know, she at one point bought, bought a boat and called it the first boomer or something along those lines. So she is, <laughs> she is very self-aware as a baby boomer, which is, which I think is very fitting <laughs> for the first baby boomer to have that sort of that sensibility. Uh, and, you know, it just, it makes it that much more interesting to talk to her because, you know, you, you, you can see how she's aware of herself as, a, as, as something special as sort of a microcosm of the way in which the boom itself sees itself as something special. And she lives in New Jersey, so she does Well, she's very boomer. Jersey. She has a home in Jersey. She has a home in Florida, uh, where she uh -huh. is right now, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Uh, would we, do we know anything about her politics and has it changed over the years? Uh, I don't know that it's changed over the years. She's a, she's a devout Catholic. Uh, she is pro-life. But as she explained to me, when she says she's pro-life, that also means she uh, supports better uh, restrictions on gun ownership. She calls herself a moderate Democrat. She's married to a somewhat conservative independent. Uh, when I met with her, I met with her in Jersey around the holidays in 2021, and she rolled up in a pickup truck, which I had uh, earlier in the book written about how pickup trucks were an indicator of the Republican partisanship. And so you know, I, I was prompted to ask her whose pickup truck was it because it didn't fit with her, but it was, in fact, her husband's. Um, so, yeah, she is a, a moderate Democrat and, uh, you know, seems to be, again, very aware of the ways in which, uh, for example, race inflects our politics and things along those lines. So she's she's very, very, very smart about this stuff. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large is Washington Post columnist Philip Bump. His book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, is published by uh, Viking. And uh, he, uh, well, what else can I say about it other than uh, this is a, a topic I think that uh, I find personally very fascinating because I've wondered about all sorts of things like do people become more politically conservative as they get older, and how would that apply to the baby boomer generation? Yeah, and it's it's a good question. There certainly are, uh, if one looks at trends, you can see how uh, there does tend to be more Republican voting as people get older in past generations. But it's also important to recognize that 
the history of science on this stuff, of polling and of social science research, is really pretty young. I mean, it's certainly less than a century old, really. Uh, and as such, it's hard to say what happens with generations as they get older. Even if it were the case, though, uh, that people necessarily in the past had gotten more conservative as they got older, meaning voting more heavily Republican, since conservative uh, can mean lots of different things. The young generation in America today looks so different than the past young generations. It's so much more diverse. It's so much more aware of its diversity uh, and open to and embracing its diversity that I don't think it's fair to make the same assumptions. I mean, should we assume, for example, that young black Americans today are going to necessarily become more uh, conservative or the young Hispanic Americans are? Uh, no, I don't think that's a fair assumption to make, even if that were the past pattern that we'd seen previously, which I, I don't know that we can necessarily say that we have. Well, we make all sorts of assumptions about race in those terms. And yet when I see a, a Trump rally, there's usually at least one or two African-Americans in the back. And then, of course, there's Kanye, uh, who sounds very much like a white nationalist. So it's, it, things are a bit more complicated than the obvious, aren't they? Yeah, it, that's true. I mean, I, I obviously you, one can can pick out isolated examples and exceptions, right? I mean, I don't think that Kanye West, I mean, Donald Trump and Kanye West both spent a lot of time insisting that Kanye West was, uh, you know, going to pull this huge African-American constituency over to Donald Trump's side in 2016, 2020. Uh, that didn't manifest simply because that you know, Kanye West is an exception. Kanye West is, uh, you know, I'm not going to try and parse his his recent uh, performances uh, such as they are uh but you know kanye west is 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 not a normal person in a lot of regards yes. right you know um you know it's sort of happens well there are so many people so many people out there in the public eye who are not normal people uh it's sure it's always a relief when we see somebody who we kind of can relate to that's uh, <laughs> no, very true uh but yeah i mean i just you know i i just don't feel comfortable that like what what we see broadly when we look at broad trends and broad polling and things along those lines is that we don't necessarily have this, you know, we don't we don't see anything um, uh, that suggests that the patterns that our general understanding of these patterns is is likely to change. Well, I was asking earlier whether people become more conservative as they get older, whether the boomers mm -hmm. are getting more conservative. Didn't Donald Trump receive only a slight majority of boomer votes? But he did get a majority. Yes, that's right. Boomers boomers did prefer Donald Trump in both of the elections. One of the reasons that Donald Trump lost in 2020 and didn't in 2016, um, at least, you know, <laughs> the electoral vote, uh, is that the population of people who were even older than the boomers had was cut in half. The number of voters who were uh, older than baby boom members, uh, according to Pew Research's analysis, which I think is very solid, uh, was what was literally half of what it had been uh, in 2016. That was a group that very heavily supported Donald Trump. Uh, and so that was made up for by younger people uh, who much preferred Joe Biden. Uh, and that was a, a key reason that Donald Trump lost in 2020. Well, I've been wondering how generations and parties overlap. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, 
the silent and older generations are is more Republican Democratic boomers or a slightly more Republican. Uh, and there's charts to this in the book, uh, as you might expect. Gen X is, is about half and half. Uh, and it's really once you get to millennials uh, and Gen Z, although Gen Z is hard to measure because you, you certainly can't measure it over time because they're, they're still relatively young. Millennials are much more heavily Democratic. And in fact, the only group among millennials who is more Republican Democratic are white male millennials who are more Republican Democratic. Uh, but that has much less of an effect because such as a much smaller percentage of millennials are white male than, for example, baby boomers, uh, among whom, you know, the white male population is a much higher percentage. Uh, so not only is that the only group that's more Republican Democratic, it's also a much smaller percentage of the population of that generation uh, than was the case with other generations. Well, we've been talking about generations, but what about regional identity? Uh, is it possible that regional identity will become more important than age or ethnic or racial identity in the future? I suppose it's possible. Uh, I mean, there certainly exists a very broad urban-rural divide uh, that has been growing. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about regional, it sort of depends on what you mean. I don't think that the Northeast is going to act collectively or the South is going to act collectively. I mean, look at, you know, uh, Mississippi versus Georgia, right? Or look at New Hampshire versus New York. You know, these are these are regionally similar places, but New York State is much more democratic than is New Hampshire because in New York City, uh, even if it, there are a lot of working-class white people in upstate New York that tend to vote more heavily Republican. Uh, Georgia is uh, is very diverse um, and increasingly diverse in a way that has helped shape its politics. So they're, they're more Democratic. Uh, but, you know, it's right next to Mississippi. So, you know, there are uh, urban and rural continues to be a very, very salient divide politically. Uh, but I'm not sure that broader regions, you know, I mean, as yeah. Utah versus Nevada versus California, right? Like, I mean, what's the, uh, I'm not sure that that's something where we're going to start to see those things become more uh, politically similar. Well, we've seen changes right here in New York, Long Island, which uh, was generally uh, more blue, uh, pretty much went all red in the, in the uh, recent elections. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how many how many lessons we should take from 2022 in New York, which is a which is an unusual election. I mean, certainly it's not one that Democrats are excited about, right? Um, no. You know, but it is. It, it, it gave remains. us George Santos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It gave us at least the entertainment value, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, yes, that's true. Uh, but again, a lot of that is also. Uh, this question of urban, rural, exurban, you know, how those sorts of places, it, it continues to be the case that a lot of the deciding factors in elections are suburban slash exurban voters, uh, which I think we can safely slot Long Island into the category of. We only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, are there any other things that you feel are important to bring into this conversation? I mean, the one thing I always like to point out to folks is that you know, we are at this moment of generational tension where the baby boom is for the first time really seeing its its power challenged by younger people. Uh, but that's also exacerbated, exacerbated by the ability of those younger people to be heard. Right. So we have mm -hmm. uh, this this generational tension that has emerged at a time when we also have seen the emergence of social media. And so we have things like young people being able to challenge older people literally directly, you know, challenge them on social media, get in their faces, uh, do, you know, reply to them on TikTok with the, the, the viral hit. OK, boomer. Right. They're like there is a reason that that tension, the OK, boomer, baby.
race tension emerge, and that's because of social media. And that's not something that past generations has always been generational tension, of course. Uh, but that sort of confrontationalism has not been as readily uh, available uh, to younger people. Uh, you could protest in the streets, you could have a march at university, things along those lines, uh, but it's very different today. Uh, and I think that the presence of that uh, has 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 colored the way in which the generations are, are sort of see each other skeptically. Has any study been done to find out how much baby boomers are using social media in comparison to uh, the younger generations? Yeah, uh, Pew Research Center does really good analysis of this, some of which is included in the book. And uh, yes, I mean, with the exception of Facebook, most social media tools are very much the purview of younger Americans. Facebook is one of the few ones where it actually tends to be more older Americans who use it than younger ones. Uh, only Facebook. That's interesting. That's yeah. because uh, because of the kind of exchange that occurs in Facebook. It's, it's yeah, I mean, I think between it's friends. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that uh, the way in which Facebook was built out was built out on, you know, it, there was a lot of emphasis on friends and family. And so there was a reason to get your older relative involved. They want to see pictures of your kids, things like that. It's also been around now for, you know, it, what, 15 plus years. And so it's been around a long time in, in social media terms. Um, Twitter was never about that. Twitter wasn't about your actual immediate familial and friend social group in the same way that Facebook is. And I think that contributed to getting a lot of older people involved in it. What generation were you born into? I'm a proud member of Generation X to the extent that uh -huh. any generation besides the baby boom exists, which it doesn't. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, as I said, you can, if you, there's anything else you want to add, we have just a, well, we don't have much time to add it, but it's been a lot of fun talking with you, Philip Bump. Of course. His book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, published by Viking. He's a national correspondent for the Washington Post, and he writes a newsletter called How to Read This Chart. How do people access that? Uh, if you literally just type how to read this chart to Google, that's probably the easiest way. I, I, I just one last point that I would make to your point. I, I, I when I have these conversations, a lot of baby boomers feel as though they're being targeted, which is absolutely not what the book is about. So if you feel as though you've been shortchanged, I encourage you take a look at the book. It's 400 pages. There's a lot of nuance <laughs> that's included in there. Uh, but it is not a book that's hostile to baby boom, but rather just recognizing the position that baby boom is held. Well, I'm relieved that I was born before the baby boomers, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> You're right. That's, you know, that's, that is a small population of Americans. You're unique in that regard, absolutely. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our around 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to 
keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America by Philip Bum. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy at $10, $15, $25, however much you can afford per month. Uh, it allows us to plan for the future, and, and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. It's tax deductible. Now, you've been listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York, and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow.